Oh, ladies and gentlemen, the US reality TV show is back in this in this new season. Is back with a bang. I'm here for it. I'm glued. Let's get stuck in. In the words, public enemies, Chuck D. Bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. So yeah, American, American, the America reality TV shows um, is 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 starting its new season. It's ramping up very nicely. Very good first episode. Uh, we're not going to get into it in too much detail. Um, only in a week where, but. I just wanted to just just we're back, baby. We're back, my favorite TV show's back. You see, you know, last year was very very UK based, right? And I was just thinking, man, it must be so fun to watch the UK just you know just from afar just burn down, right? And France has had its own right in the past few weeks. Um, it's been very interesting looking at France as a just um you know just full on protesting and turn it into it turns into you know violent protests right and riots in some places etc etc is very interesting it's very interesting looking at that um but there's nothing like the american reality tv show there is nothing like it there is really nothing like it it's just so it's just so juicy man like the way out everybody in some way was was begging for a mugshot even trump even Trump wanted a mugshot. Like, he wanted a mugshot. You know why he wanted it, right? So he could sell that shit. And he already is. There's already emails and texts of uh, him trying to fundraise. And they have, like, a fake mugshot on a t-shirt. Um, and it's just it's just hilarious. It's, just, it's so, so good. The the libs want, want a mugshot just, you know, just to, I don't know, parade it around their Twitter sphere. And the right wingers want a mugshot so they can further deify him, and it's just, oh, it's it's so, it's, it's so great. It's it's just so great. Anyway, yeah, it's been a solid week. Can't complain. Um, about to do something after this recording, which is very fun. About to um hit up a, um, uh, about to be a guest in a uh, university um seminar, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a lecturer seminar, probably a seminar, um, on global hip-hop, and um, yeah man, just uh, ahead of time, I'm recording it ahead of time, but by the time it drops, it's, uh, it would have already been done, um, big ups to Dr. Joshua Wright for inviting me, um, and yeah, it's just, uh, that, that that's if you, if you know me, you know what I mean, hip-hop student, all that kind of stuff, I, I try and hold up hip-hop academia, right? and all its hallmarks, and why it's so important, and why it's so good, and um, the fact that I'm just participating in it, in it, just a little bit, just in just this little bit, it's so fulfilling, I, 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 it's beyond my wildest dreams, I love it, I love it, I can't wait, um, but yeah, let's jump around the show, we've got a packed, uh, packed tip, um, full of uh, full of really good stuff, um, 
got a life, two societies, and a TV, which we're going to start with. But before we begin, formalities, before we begin, email, socials, writing, all that, and full show notes, as well as music and other podcasts under the 5 VPN. Missed out on ISOS this week. Um, everyone had uh, conflicting schedules, so we couldn't get an episode out uh, this week, as usual. Um, but we'll try and get back on track on that front. And DITD um, is actually going to celebrate its anniversary next m- next week. Um, so give that a follow. Perfect time to follow. We can do some reflection. And we're going to ask ourselves a very a very existential question um, to, to kind of celebrate. Um, and it, yeah, it's very overall. And I think it has a lot to do. I think it's a perfect time to do it um, with hip hop being 50 years old um, this year in August. Um, I think it's a very good. It's going to be a very good conversation and a very good celebration of um, just uh, me and Ben continuing to continue to do our things. Um, haven't missed a Tuesday drop ever since we began, nearly I think four years ago. Now that's crazy to think about. But anyway, all of that, all of that in the full show notes. Now that said, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where Trump is indicted, Oscar Pistorius and Charles Bronson are both denied parole, Connecticut and LSU win their respective NCAA National Basketball Championships, TikTok is fined £12.7 million for UK data protection breaches, fun, and lastly, Finland becomes the 31st member of NATO. Um, which is which sets a lot of interesting precedents, uh, especially when it comes to the ongoing Russo-Ukraine war. So let's begin. I said TV, so let's begin with that. Um, so a friend uh, asked me to watch um, the new Donald Glover project um, called Swarm. Um, if you haven't watched it, I I without trying without spoiling it, basically it's about this. Um, Beyonce stan um, they don't say Beyonce they you know make up a fictional Beyonce type character called Niger and um, but it's, it's basically about Beyonce right it's just, it's heavily you know it's, it's called Swarm Bees Hive they mention all of that except actually mentioning Beyonce because legal right um, <laughs> don't want Beyonce suing your ass um, but yeah it, they, they skirt the limits of you know uh, of uh, that kind of identity using thing going on um, yeah, basically it's about a girl who's a big fan of, uh, this Niger character, Beyonce, and, um, she's basically just, I don't know whether she's a psychopath or a sociopath, I tried, I looked up the differences between the two, and she kind of, devi- she kind of deviates between each, I would lean psychopath, but there's some psychopath, some sociopathic elements as well, so I, I don't know, um, I'm going to go with psychopath, but there's, the, the, that's kind of a thing about it, it's just, um, you don't really know, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of satirical in that fashion, you know what I mean, trying to be of overt commentary about stan culture, um, and it takes it to the extremes where, you know, this woman is literally, she's a serial killer, right, and that's basically the vibe, um, and she's desperate to see Niger, and, you know, because she's, I've got a connection with her, you know what I mean, stuff like that, as Stans love to do, um, but yeah, uh, but past that, there's something that I was, while I was watching, I was just like, 
just uh, just didn't make, didn't feel right. Just there was something about it that didn't feel right. And this article actually, I think, really, I might not read it all, but I'm going to try to read as much as possible because um, it is kind of lengthy for use for usual double WG. I would have maybe put this in long read territories, kind of skirts in between. Depends how fast I read it and how much I you know jump out of it, but. Um, I think it's a good. I think it's a good place to think about this as an overall, without even watching Swarm. Um, if you don't want to watch it, right? Um, if you don't have Amazon Prime Video, I literally had to jack my sister's account just to watch it. Um, but yeah, you know, y- if you, if you don't have it, then why watch it, right? Uh, it's not. It's not that great to entice you to get Amazon Prime Video just to watch it. Let's just say that it's not that great. But um, interesting article I found based on it. Um, and it's more about Donald Glover than the actual show, but you know they mentioned it. So this is by Ni- uh, Nyla Burton uh, via Vox. It's called "Swarm Isn't a Love Letter Black to Black Women; It's Hate Mail." Um, and if you have been in Donald Glover circles, um, there's this you know thing about him that whenever he has black women in his shit, or you know just uh, the way he portrays black women in his shows, it's either very derogatory um or like kind of mocking uh which which happens a lot in this show and if it's not that it's kind of like in this and again in this case is a show dehumanizing and um yeah just never paints he never paints them in the best light and i find that a bit weird anyway let's jump by in 2013 when i was a freshman at howard university one of my friends was borderline obsessed with childish gambino's music before that i hadn't heard much about but gambino or his alter ego then comedian donald glover but i was surprised when in the midst of a conversation praising his artistry my friend who is a black also a black woman flatly said that the rapper didn't like black women something she said was evident not only in his dating choices at the time rumor was he only dated asian white women but in his lyrics everyone knows that she dismissed she said dismissively with no anger or jealousy in her voice now a decade later, I remembered my college friend's words after I finished watching Swarm, the new Amazon Prime TV show about a black woman serial killer superfan named Dre, played by Dominique Fishback, co-created by Glover, who has since established himself as a talented creator and director. And Janine Neighbors. Neighbors is a N-A-B-R-E-R-S, by the way, um, not Neighbors, like the, TV, like the Australian uh, soap opera. A uh, black woman previously worked with Glover writing for his FX show Atlanta, a series that has been praised for its tender, complex depictions of black men and widely critiqued for its caricatures of black women. Side note, Malia Obama writes an episode of Swarm, actually, um, and apparently they have uh, she has a short film under Glover's production company coming through, uh, which is so fascinating. Of all the people Malia Obama could have uh, tied her uh, tied herself to, interesting choice. Swarm, with its two-dimensional main character, storyline cluttered with misogynistic and racist tropes and dubious conclusions about black women fandoms, is perhaps the show that, for me, solidified the opinion it, my college friend expressed a decade ago. Garver's hostility towards black women no longer feels like an allegation. Because his work is so obvious, it serves as the archive of this aggression. Glover all but confirmed these concerns when he told Vulture that he had given Fishback very little directional insight into Dre. She confirmed this in the same article, telling her, quote, you don't have to find the humanity in your character. That's the audience's job. Think of it more like an animal and less like a person, unquote. Referring to a human being as an it, 
or an animal is almost always a red flag that points to an individual's deeper feelings. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence that Glover, who has continuously been criticised for dehumanising portrayals of black women, would quite literally hinder an actor's ability to find the humanity in a black woman character. Not only didn't Glover relate to Dre uh, to an animal, but he specified which one. After dismissing the character of Dre as not, quote-unquote, that layered, he said, another quote, I wanted her performance to be brutal. It's a raw thing. It reminds me of how I have a fear with dogs because I'm like, you're not looking at me in the eye. I don't know what you're capable of. With these damning quotes, Glover's misogynoir is no longer subtext. It's canon. Even though Swarm was co-created by a black woman, featuring a stunning performance by a black woman, Fishback, See, I'm I'm kind of fifty fifty on her performance as well. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's you know she's convinced she's she's convincing. Um, but I I don't know. I just I feel like she was. I feel like she was let down by the lack of direction. If that makes any sense. I love her. I loved her in the Deuce. She was great in the Deuce. Um, loved her in Project Power. That film with her, Jamie Fox. That was really good as well. She's been in some good roles, but I don't know. I just don't feel like. I feel like in the pantheon of, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths that have been portrayed in film and TV, this one just didn't click with me. And I don't know if it's because of the Donald Glover subtext, but I don't know, just didn't, it just didn't, didn't, she's not an anti-hero in this. It's kind of just like I'm watching, I'm watching a kind of like a caricature in some way I don't know it's just uh, I don't know how to explain it it just didn't feel didn't feel enticing to watch her do things if that makes any sense you know what I mean anyway and had black women like Millie or Obama in the writers room there you go Swans of Sojournoir felt like a deeper more direct insult to black women than Glover's previous projects instead of merely popping up on the occasional lyrical episode hostility and mockery towards us permeate the show Swarm is set in Houston Texas and follows Dre a young super fan of pop star Niger who in the show serves as a cringy mirror of the real-life Beyoncé. Dre has two important women in her life, Niger and Dre's foster sister, Marissa, played by Chloe Bailey, and they're fatally entwined. intertwined. After listening to Niger's surprise release visual album about her rapper and uh, rapper husband Cachet's infidelity, sound familiar, Marissa dies by suicide, seemingly so impacted by both the album and her own boyfriend of three months, played by Damson Idris, cheating on her that she cannot live any longer. With Marissa, the the object of her psychosexual obsession, gone, Dre starts to unravel. Grief-stricken and kicked out of the funeral by Marissa's biological family, Dre sets out in pursuit of me and Niger. This transforms into a cross-country killing spree, with Dre murdering people... Well, okay, I said I wouldn't spoil it, but here goes the article spoiling it. (laughs) Murdering people who speak badly about Niger. Who's your favourite artist? Becomes her villainous catchphrase. Even that, I was just like... Alright, can we skip this? Like the final episode is so so kind of disappointing. Um kind of for that reason, because it it it, it kinda of, it's like a slow a slower burn of what's already happened. Like you know she's gonna die at the end. You know she's gonna kill her in the end. It's just like when is it gonna happen? It takes twenty minutes to do so and it's just like it's kinda of like get on with it. But I know why they did it, but I just I don't know, it just didn't hit for me. I don't think it should have been the last episode. Um, if the answer isn't Niger, you're likely to get a lecture on why it should be, and then bludgeon to death. Dre finds her victims anywhere, her dead sister's cheating boyfriend, blackmail influences, and mechanics in the Twitter comments, her co-worker's white abusive boyfriend, the co-worker herself, her murderers, her murders aren't complex, 
Anyone who isn't against Niger annoys Dre or stands in the way of Dre seeing Niger doesn't tend to live long. This, Glover says, is his attempt at examining extreme fan culture, whose adherents are often referred to as stands, the term originating from a classic Eminem song. I'll return to that later. The problem is that the depiction of stand culture isn't just problematic, it's inaccurate. There are countless issues with Swarm, but perhaps its most glaring one is how it fails to understand or speak truthfully to its supposed subject, employing what feels like irresponsible misinformation. Each episode, save episode 6, uh, which is a mockumentary about Dre's violence, which is probably the best episode out of the bunch. I feel like D- Donald Glover actually does really well with mockumentaries, and I feel like he should probably just do that instead, because these these shows that he has, like Atlanta, just sometimes it just... just uh, There's something about them, man. Like, I like a few Atlanta episodes, probably a, few, probably a fair few. I haven't seen the most recent season, but, you know, there's some good episodes in there, very creative, but... um. There's something about them sometimes that just irk me. Um, features a facetious play on the classic Hollywood disclaimer, asserting the events in the show as true and claiming, quote, any similarity to actual persons, living or dead, how all actual events is, in, is intentional, unquote. This switcheroo immediately feels tired and unoriginal, like what a sophomore year film student might find desperately inventive. True. It also confuses viewers in an almost unproductive way. In fact, I actually had to kind of... I, I kind of... I looked it up just to see if, like, just to see what the lines were. I was like, oh, right, so they're just bullshit and trying to just make it, you know, edgy. Okay. It also confuses views in a productive way. There were even a few people online who seemed to be wondering whether Dre is a real killer still on the loose. And that's why the mockumentary was so good. It was very convincing. I was very convinced by the mockumentary element. Uh, that episode was really good. That's why I liked it, because it felt, it felt legit. I know it wasn't, but it felt legit. Um, it, did, it did a lot of good, the good things on there. But none, and that's why the last episode annoyed me because it was just like it, the the mockumentary was really good, and then you just gave me another episode of just her just killing someone. I'm just like, oh great, what would you do? But none of the events portrayed in Swarm, save perhaps the incidents surrounding Niger's Niger Beyonce's husband being unfaithful, are true stories. That hasn't stopped the creators from being coy about the falsity underlying their latest project. Glover has described the stories as true-ish, and said Swarm is a post-truth TV series. Neighbours told Vulture that, quote, the pilot story is a real event and the finale is a real event, and they exist in the world of the internet, uh, internet rumours or a YouTube video or Twitter, unquote. If we leave aside for a minute that something existing as a rumour on the internet makes for a real event, it's a nearly trumping contradiction as nonsensical as the phrase alternative facts. Neither the pilot nor the finale are true stories either, as neighbours admitted to Shondaland, both Marissa's suicide and existence were rumours that were never confirmed. Although, yes, the character does share the same name of a woman who, urban legend holds, died following the release of Lemonade. And there certainly were no reports or rumours of a foster sister killing people in the aftermath. In the finale, Dre, now calling herself Tony, and living as a masculine-presenting lesbian, Runs into the stage at Niger concert. In real life, there was a man named Anthony who ran the sta- ran onto the stage during a 2018 Beyonce Jay Z concert. But there is nothing to suggest in in uh, the real life Anthony was a murderer or a violent person. The plotline must most firmly rooted in reality is probably the one where Dre bites Beyonce. But Beyonce was allegedly bit by an actress, not a fan. Shout to Tiffany Haddish. Uh, these are incredibly flimsy rumors ba- uh, to base an entire series off of. Yet, uh, uh, yet they alone are the creator's justification to declare the series to be based on reality and a reflection of stand culture. It matters that these stories aren't true, and that even gossip versions can't be credited to violent stands. 
How can you claim to write a show that is exploring fandoms and mental health when you are stuffing it with an amalgamation of rumours and partially true stories and calling it a meaningful statement? Glover is an inventive and important artist. I previously praised his exploration of Afro-surrealism in Atlanta. Good shout. But sometimes he masks simple immaturity as a meta-commentary. Consider his controversial, uh, controversial 2022 interview where he interviewed himself. Horrible interview. I, I for, uh, what, what, what site did that? Interview magazine? L. L. Biggest, fat, fattest L. I hate. That was so crap. That was, that was the worst bit of clickbait. Just interviewing yourself... Just hire someone, please. I beg you, hire someone to actually do some substantial interviewing. You might as well have just tweeted. Either you might as well have just done that. Uh, I'm sure he meant it to be daring. While it did cause a flurry of conversation, as core, it was tiring and confusing, and the ensuing social media noise spoke more to his trollish leanings than to his ability to give readers any real insight. Facts. The interview was also one of the times that Glover addressed the criticisms of misogynoir he received uh, for the years, uh, received for years. In the interview, Glover asked himself, are you afraid of black women? He replied to himself, why are you asking me that? Glover continued, still speaking to himself, I feel like your relationship to them has played a big part in your narrative. Replying again, he said, I feel like you're using black women to question my blackness. <sighs> I just I hate that. I hate that part. It just, just sucks. It was nonsensical, but also a way to make light of the very real concerns and questions the public has had over a decade about his portrayal of black women in songs and TV. Uh, even the phrasing of black women playing a big part in his narrative is framed, for, framed as though the interest in Glover's relationship to and with black women comes entirely from outside his work and is in reaction to deliberate uh, to deliberate choices to deliberate choices he's made in his work. Made in his work. Glover is playing the role of a precocious auteur here, stopping his feet, not wanting to respond meaningfully to any criticism, but still desiring to be regarded as a great artist, causing controversy and resenting the inevitable visibility the controversy garners. In this, Glover and even minor writers like William Obama are simultaneously too close and too removed from the subject matter, fame and the people who worship the famous, to make an intelligent and compelling statement about it from a standard perspective. Glover admitted, see, what you, you know what you could have done? You know what you could have done? Take fan fiction. Take fan fiction and just do that. Because there's some fucked up fan fiction out there. I, I know some people that know some people <laughs> that know some fanfic. And there's some freaky shit out there. Like, if you, you could have just done that. You could have just taken one of those and just went off that. Honestly, it would have been so much more compelling. Uh, Glover admitted that they didn't have an expert in fandom advice on the show. Uh... Fandom advice with an S on the show, I don't know, and suggested to Vulture that the fame of some in the writer's room qualified them to write about stands from this perspective. Yeah, because people stand Melira Obama. Okay. Anyway, quote, we have people who are famous in the writer's room and people you barely know. Everybody had a story about how they were roasted. Everyone had the same story of being like, this person said something and then some people jumped on the bandwagon and affected me, he said. Glover has greatly benefited from hypervisibility and yet perhaps understandably feels aggrieved by it. But, though, uh, but through a lens uh, where one sees themselves as a perpetual victim of visibility, whether that is a correct assessment or not, the behaviours of the public will all, perhaps always feel more aggressive or dangerous than they are. Glover knows what his reputation is with regards to black women, and yet with Swarm he chose to take a black, queer, mentally ill woman and make her the avatar of violent stands. All of those intersections of oppression, black, LGBTQIA+, and people with mental illness are far more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators. Good point. Great point. 
Glover isn't the first person to use art to explore violent fandom. That there's a reason to believe that many artists who do, who do so aren't critiquing society, but rather battling with their own inner conflict and guilt. Like Swarm, Stan, which some call Eminem's magnum opus, was also not based on a real story. The song features a ramb- like You know what Stan is, so I'm just not even going to bother explaining that. I'm going to skip to more uh, pertinent matters here, because you guys are well aware of what Stan, the Eminem uh, song, is. Glover's own work isn't nearly as violent as Eminem's, but there's something to be said about how, for the celebrity, perhaps the fear of the stand's potential for great violence is more about the artist's resentment of their invisibility, apprehension or guilt about past actions, and the paranoia that comes with such an inhuman level of surveillance. Good point. So the celebrity fandom is violent because of its sheer scale of demand of visibility. Great point. They lack the ability to see each fan as an individual and instead see them as a hive, as a swarm, moving as one ominous cloud of danger. And through that lens, everything is magnified. Absolute perfect paragraph right there. Banger. Perhaps this is also how Glover has come to see black women as a dangerous horde of screeching banshees that he must endure, but never capitulate to. Through this lens, it's also often easy for many to dismiss the concerns about his misogynoir as romantic jealousy. While I won't deny that this can sometimes exist, a feeling of entitlement to someone sexually because of their race, it is not what is happening to Glover. Black women are not upset because he is an object of desire we want to possess. We are upset because in his work, he has made us objects of horror and ridicule, or as mere plot devices to move black men's stories forward. Great point. A disclaimer of my own, I am not a member of the Hive. I tend to listen to Beyonce's new album about a week after everyone else, and yet I struggled to articulate what felt so hostile about Glover, supposedly a friend of Beyonce's according to Neighbours, uh, using the momentum of her upcoming tour that honours black queer music to betray a black queer fan of hers as a murderous quote-unquote dog. Even the image of Beyonce that Niger has been cast in feels more like a mockery and less like a respectful nod. No effort was made to distinguish Niger from Beyonce. The literalism is lazy writing, and ironically makes the portrayal of Ring false. Since Niger captures all the aesthetics and mere facts of Beyonce's public life, but almost none of the elements of why black women enjoy Beyonce's music. The political and racial significance of Lemonade is stripped here, removing the black southern specificity of the album and how it explored generational trauma, slavery, and police brutality. Which is very interesting and kind of disappointing coming from someone like Glover who's act, who's delivered, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, Because of the Internet, which is, you know, kind of, um, which is dense in some ways. Maybe not Beyonce level dense, but dense, um, you know, and stuff like, uh, 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 fucking hell, what's the, what's the, um, oh, what's the, um, what's the other album with me and your mama and Redbone on it? Why have I forgotten what that name is? Anyway. You know what I'm talking about. The one with the mask. Uh, one with the, with the, funny enough, the uh, black woman on the on the cover. <clears throat> uh, by casting Niger's album Festival, um, it's just an album about infidelity. The work of real-life poet Warsan Shire, uh, who penned the poems that accompanied Lemonade's visual album, is also erased here. Provocative, haunting, and sometimes disturbing, the Somali-British poet's work is arguably some of the best we've seen from a black woman, in po- black woman poet in decades, and bore no small weight on the intensity uh, with which many black women, including myself, identified with Beyonce's 2016 album. I did not know about Warsan Shire's uh, poetry. I should get into that. Still, no one is required to pay homage to Beyonce. She is not scared. However, why would a friend and peer construct a poorly made parody of what was, according to every indication, an incredibly personal album exploring fidelity, generational trauma, miscarriage, and motherhood? I have no intelligent insight to offer, uh, but this, it felt low 
and mean. Uh, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna see what I could do in terms of skipping because I want to kind of just get this finished. Um, okay, let me go for the last paragraph. If swarm, I've left a, a literally three paragraphs um, out of it. I've, uh, that's all I've omitted. So get spinning on that if you want to get spinning. Last paragraph. If Swarm is a love letter to black women, it is the kind of love letter you report to the authorities to receive a restraining order against the sender. The kind of worrying letter sent by a fan who doesn't really understand the artist, and if Glover doesn't understand black women or fan culture, perhaps it's best he refrains from writing about either. And Gemma, shout out to Nyla Burton on that. Um, very, I think, brave piece to write um, in some ways. I feel um, a lot of the commentary for this um, show has been relatively positive and this is the only genuine critique um i might know i was actually originally going to title this swarm um on the on the on the episode title but i might just put donald glover instead because i feel like it's more about obviously glover's artistry than anything else but um yeah yeah man shout out to nana burn really good piece Let's jump into the two society segments and finish on the life. Um, this one is all about the crackdown on NOS, hippie crack, nitrous oxide, all of that stuff. Fun fact: I never actually tried it, and I never felt the need to. Um, I've, you know, been around people that have tried it. Um, I've been around, uh, yeah, I know people that have tried it. Um, I just never saw the hype. Never saw the hype. Um, whenever people describe it to me I'm just like I don't know it just it just doesn't sound it sounds a bit pointless you know what I mean as a, as a task um just just smoke weed <laughs> it might it might cost more but just smoke weed like you know what I mean just uh, just that little high of you know basically your you know brain losing oxygen that's as all it is uh, what's the point um but it's been reverted um, or resulted into another good old moral panic. Um, and now there's a crackdown on it uh, by the government. Um, but there's a bigger, uh, well, as Miss Moya Lothi McLean of Navarra Media claims, um, there's something bigger to this. And uh, I wanted to get into it. So uh, this is called The Crackdown on NOS isn't about antisocial behaviour. It's about social control. <sighs> Ooh, social control. That's deep, that's deep, let's jump home. Hippie crackdown, screamed Monday's Metro front page. Editors wheeled out the creaking pun in reference to the government's looming ban on nitrous oxide, now more commonly re- referred to as NOS than hippie crack. The policy made headlines everywhere, as intended, heralding the launch of Rishi Sunak's anti-social behaviour action plan, which harks back to the dark days of hoodie panics and full-blown punitive populism. Remember Asbos? That was fun. Alongside the for, and chavs, great word. I miss chavs. That's a, I missed. I miss saying the word chavs. You fucking chav, chav. Great word to use. Alongside the further criminalisation of NOS, it includes new powers to wield against nuisance begging, uh, fast track evictions, and the rollout of questionably executed community payback initiatives. The aim is obvious. With an election in sight, the Tories are attempting to use political cover provided by arbitrary social control to shelter from the electoral consequences of 13 years of national decline. Unsurprisingly, 
This means going against advice that proposes actual long-term solutions to the problems identified, such as littering from NOS canisters and street homelessness. The NOS ban alone directly contradicts recent recommendations from a government commission review into the recreational use of laughing gas. An assessment uh, assessment delivered by the Independent Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, ACMD, concluded that the substance should, quote, not be subjected to control under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971, unquote. Non-legitimate use of laughing gas, aka outside Lakota nightclub with five of your criminology course mates, is currently regulated under the Psychoactive Substances Act 2016. This legislation said the ACMD remains appropriate in curbing recreational NOS consumption. It found use of the drug amongst uh, among uh, 16 to 24 year olds has actually reduced significantly over the past six years. Appropriate, perhaps, but rather less effective in whipping up a food roar. A ban on NOS. I love it how I love it when the government, um, uh, a, a government commission review says something logical and common sense and makes recommendations based on said common sense and then the government go you know what gonna do the complete opposite i, I just love it I, I i love it they they pay for reviews they give common they're giving you common sense and then you just go yep i'm gonna do the exact 180 that's what i'm gonna do Stuff, big brain big brain ideas right now a ban on nos is the perfect springboard for the wider crackdown on anti-social behavior it's a drug, tick, primarily used by young people, tick, often in public areas, tick. And then there's an adjacent litter problem, gigantic Middle England tick. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. I do love Moya's writing. It's very, uh, I don't know, it's, it's the, 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 uh, her occasional comedic elements are just, um, just, just spice up nicely. You know what I mean? Like the rest of it's very, you know, well written, serious, and then you know, just gigantic Middle England tick and brackets, just, just things like that. I love it. I love it. it keeps me engaged. Uh, so well primed is not to be hijacked for punitive ends. Uh, then it's that it seems almost like it was designed in some voted, voted f o e t i d voted. I've never heard that word before. It's interesting. Uh, Tory strategy bunker. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> I wonder what "voted" means. "Voted," "feted." I, I've, I've, I've. This is a struggle. Bloody hell! Okay, here we go. It's smelling extremely unpleasant. Okay, "fetted," "fetted." All right. Okay, right there you go. Extremely unpleasant. There you go. Uh, and the debate raging around is perspective. Uh, perspective prohibition helps obscure some of the more morally repugnant pledges made by Sunak's plan which essentially seeks to reframe vulnerable people who dare to exist in public view as the enemy of social norms. This positioning is made clear in the introduction of the plan, which defines antisocial behaviour as, quote, a disturbance or disruption to the normal order of things, unquote. Who dictates what is considered normative isn't touched upon, of course. Instead, boasts a strategy, £160 million will be devoted to tackling the likes of people, quote, causing harm and blight while begging and antisocial tenants. Um, quote. Meanwhile, no word yet on that no-fault eviction ban that was promised in 2019. Quote, no one should be criminalised for simply having nowhere to live, opens a section that details in full how people will be criminalised for people for simply having nowhere to live, begging that causes nuisance or distress. Presumably distress refers to that experience by the general genteel public and not the person on the street asking for a quid, will be prohibited. Police and local authorities will also be handed new powers to address rough seeping, because that's what the police need. More powers. <laughs> that's what they need right now. They need more power. Uh, yeah, they're not... Um, 
and not cra- and not a breaking up of the Met Police. Here we are. Uh, police and authorities of Henry Powers uh, roughs address, address rough sleeping and clear debris, tents, and paraphernalia that can be a blight that can blight an area. Oh, so basically what LA's doing. Love it. Um, AKA the makeshift homes created by people forced into street homelessness. There's also an exciting new delineation made between those who are considered genuinely homeless and people who are more who are also who also are homeless but have annoyed a passerby in some manner, thus rendering them liable for punishment and exclusion from support services. Even aspects of the antisocial behaviour action plan, which ostensibly sounds less punitive, such as the concept of community payback, whereby offenders do community work instead of facing jail time, are revealed uh, as penal and incoherent on closer examination. In fact, community payback be- bears closer resemblance to chain gangs rather uh, than any sort of re- restorative justice. Emphasis is placed on the public nature of the punishment, right down to the high-vis vests that will be worn by those carrying it out. What's more, while the plan envisions, uh, see, not envisages, envisions, perfect, thank you, a system whereby those sentenced to community payback will be working within their local areas, addressing offences committed there, such as cleaning up graffiti they are responsible for. Their reality is very different. As enacted under the Tories, work under the policy, which has existed for years, is often unmoored from the community impacted by the initial offence in 2014, Tracy McMahon uh, observed that it is often carried out far from the actual community the person lives in. In addition, time wastage was a huge issue. Uh, Quite the majority of time is spent waiting around to be collected by the van to be transported to the area of work, she recalled. Since then, cuts to every aspect of the criminal justice system, from frontline policing to probation service staff, mean issues like the ones McMahon highlighted uh, will only be exacerbated. As such, we have to ask who is exactly going to be enacting the various pledges that make up the plan. Much of Sunak's vision relies on the police as enforcers, despite a 35% decrease in police reports received about antisocial behaviour since 2012. At a time where policing in England and Wales is mired in in crises both practical and existential nature. Thank you, Miss Luthien McLean. Even for pro-police camps, the extra burdens of community policing demanded by the plan is practically unworkable from the word go. As neighbor, as neighborhood officer, officer numbers have been culled by austerity. But for those of us who don't believe that more policing or policing at all is a solution to the issues bund, uh, to the issue bundled under the banner of antisocial behavior, other concerns arise. As the plan is explicitly outlined, it is the most disadvantaged and powerless, the young, the homeless, the already socially alienated, who will be disproportionately penalized by this, the last word in curtain twitching. We know the tragic consequences of criminalising these demographics. Just last week, the Children's Commissioner released a damning report that found children as young as eight are being strip-searched by police across England and Wales, often without even the meagre mitigations to make the practice less traumatising, impossible, carried out. The same goes for the other groups who sit outside the boundaries the Tories are redrawing around socially acceptable behaviour. Not once in the history of this country has punishment worked to generate a more unified or cohesive society. But that's not really the point, is it? As with much of the current government policy, uh, it's less about reality and more about tapping into a rich theme of primal fear, loathing, and English uh, conceptions, and he said contraception, conceptions of what is proper. And whether or not it actually delivers the Tories the polling boost they seek, the rhetoric, and it hasn't, by the way, to a labour of um, kind of steady uh, double-digit lead at this point, Again, subject to change, of course. I'm never going to know what's going to happen with these lot. 
Especially when people vote for Tories just because. Is it hate Labour? Hate Labour. All right. Okay. So, well, anyway, don't want to get into that. And whether or not it actually delivers to Tories, sake, the rhetoric has really taken root. In a two-party system, if the opposition are picking up your points, it doesn't matter if you lose the battle. You've won the war. And with Keir Starmer sounding off about life-ruining cannabis smoke, that was so hilarious. Best fucking quote of the year. Just fucking weed smoke. Oh no, weed smoke. While promising to outflank the Tories on tackling antisocial behaviour, the bait has been swallowed. The only question is... What were they called Asbos this time round? There you go. Fucking perfect. See? 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 Love, I love this one. See? I, I said at the start. I said... <laughs> she just... She just caps it off so fucking perfectly. Miss, Miss Blodian McLean, salute to you, madam. Absolute fucking baller fucking article. Balling. Every week, I'm not, and this is probably um, gonna shoot me in the foot by the end of this. But I'm generally surprised I don't um, make 70-minute episodes <laughs> as uh, often as I think. Like, I actually think every week I'm just like, God, how am I gonna fit this into less than 60 minutes, uh, less than 70 minutes? But anyway, we're getting there. See how it goes. Um, let's continue. We have an interview. Um, this is with Linton Kwesi Johnson, uh, father of dub poetry. Um, has spent decades um, writing. Um, in various forms, obviously poetry most notably, um, just about the ills of Britain. Um, very fascinating person. And uh, I saw this um, via uh, The New Statesman, uh, done by Ellen uh, Pearson Hager. And it's called Linda Kwesi Johnson, The Police Declared War on Black Youth. Um, so let's see what a guan, shall we? In 2010, the poet Linton Kwesi Johnson wrote that in the 1960s and 70s, quote, there was not an institution of the state not riddled with racial prejudice. When we met in South London in mid-March during a time when the phrase institutional racism features in headlines about everything uh, from the Metropolitan Police to schools, I asked him if he felt that was still true. Of course, he said. Uh, Does he believe in the abolition of the police? No, we can't have police abolition. There'd be anarchy, he smiled. The only time he smiled on an hour-long meeting... And a mischievous twinkle briefly appeared in his eyes. So how does he imagine things getting better? I don't know. Ask the Home Secretary. Johnson told me that he, uh, he was tired when we met outside the commercial uh, in Hearn Hill, his local at midday. The door was locked and he peered through the window. One asked how far away he lived, what else he had on the afternoon. I'm very busy, he said, before a bartender unlocked the door, welcomed him by name and proceeded to pour the tap water he had ordered. Johnson, who has lived in South London since 1963, when he was 11, wasn't interested in telling me how his home borough of Lambeth has changed over the years. Quote, There are not so many black black people living in this neighbourhood as there used to be, he said, shrugging, whilst we had settled into a corner of the still empty pub. He wore a dark overcoat and kept his checked flat cap on. It's become more gentrified, that's about it. He had more to say about poetry, in which he began his career as a spoken word performer. He, des- he is described as the father of that poetry, recording artist and political activist. At the end of the day, poetry is really about the distillation of experience through language that can offer, on rare occasions, fleeting insights into the human condition, he said. His first collection, Voices of the Living and the Dead, was published in 1974. More of his politically conscious ver- uh, verse was collected in England is a Bitch, spelled I-N-G-L-A-N, England is a Bitch, uh, 1980. 
I began with political verse because that's what inspired me. That's what moved me to write, in a sense, chronicling the black experience, what it was like being in a racially hostile environment, and what was going on in our communities. Johnson, 70, was born in the rural town of Chapeltown in Clarendon, Jamaica, in 1952. His father was illiterate and his mother's schooling, uh, mother's schooling had ended when she was 14. The couple separated in 1962. His mother moved to Britain. Uh, Johnson followed her a year later, attending Tulse Hill School in Lambeth and later studying sociology at Goldsmiths College. The immigrants of the Windrush era had been encouraged to move to Britain but were met with racial hostility. Another quote. A lot of people from my parents' generation held their heads down and dealt with the racism that confronted them in their everyday lives as best they could, Johnson said. But he and his contemporaries were different. We were what I have called the rebel generation. We weren't as passive as our parents. We'd been to school here. Some of us had white friends. We didn't have this sense of being third-class citizens. We were just as good as anybody else. Police oppression was rampant. Another quote. The fact is, when I was a youth, it was clear to us that the police... Uh, the Metropolitan, uh, the Metropolitan Police in particular, had declared war against the black youth of our generation. They were racist and they were corrupt. That war is a protracted one that continued, continues to this very day. It's a war of attrition against young black men. As a member of the Black British Panther, British Black Panthers, sorry, Johnson had been taught to witness arrests on other black of other black youth to note down their name and address to inform their family. In 1972, he was brutalised by plainclothes officers for doing so in Brixton Market. In court, he was acquitted of wrongdoing while the officers were moved to another part of the borough. I love that, by the way. Just a little, just a little note there. So nobody did anything wrong in that case, right? They just got moved to somewhere else. Like they didn't get suspended, nothing like that. No reprimand. They just went to another spot. What the fuck is that? You know what I mean? Just shit like that. That's, that's, that's where the joke... That's the joke. That's the joke right there. You know what I mean? They they, they, they batter up a dude. They take it to court. The dude being battered gets acquitted for wrongdoing. So, ergo, the wrongdoing was on the police's side, right? No, because they didn't get punished for it. They just got moved somewhere else. Brilliant. 50 years on, his grandson is still regularly stopped and searched by police. As a young man... Johnson found solace in reggae music. He was both a critic of the genre, writing reviews for Melody Maker and Race Today, and part of the scene, performing his poetry in patois over dub music played by Dennis Bovell, Bovell, I think that's how you say Bovell, and his band. It wasn't just good music to dance to, he said. It gave us a sense of identity in a hostile environment where we were being othered. We fell back on our own cultural roots. Reggae music was the uh, was like the umbilical cord that kept us connected to the land of our birth, or, or, or our parents' birth. Reggae music at that time was the most socially conscious popular music of any genre anywhere in the world. It was the nexus of a cultural resistance. Great, great advert for reggae music, by the way. That's literally exactly how I think about it. Amazing. In 2001, Johnson was invited to compile a selection of his poems for publication in the Penguin Modern Classics list. He was the first black poet and only the second living one to be included. Guardians of the canon of British poetry were critical of the decision. Did he care to be invited in? Not in the slightest bit, he said, straight-faced. Johnson writes about the experience in Time Come, a collection of criticism, political reflections, and autobiographical essays that spans 1975 to 2021, as well as his friendship with John LaRose, the activist and founder of New Beacon Books, the first specialist Caribbean publisher in Britain. But he didn't want to get bogged down in conversations about his place in the literary landscape. I don't want to, he paused. Art was there, 
More importantly, we organised ourselves, we agitated, we demonstrated, we campaigned. We fought for justice in the courts, we fought against dumping our children into schools with the educationally subnormal. We fought for equity in wages and all this sort of thing. It wasn't just, you know, the youngsters, the children of immigrants decided to po- to write political poetry. Johnson, alongside LaRose, was one of the uh, organisers of Black People's Day of Action on se- of 2nd of March uh, 1981. Thousands of people gathered together to demand justice for the victims of the New Cross House fire of that January, in which 13 young black people had died. And uh, you can also uh, peep that story. I did a story in the anniversary of it, I think, um, a couple of years ago on Moscow. Um, just search up New Cross Fire. Um, hopefully you should come up uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, quote, uh, we couldn't just sit by and do nothing, he said. Uh, there was no outpouring of sympathy from the white communities. There were no messages of condolences from anybody in authority, from the Prime Minister or the Queen or whatever. We were subjected to horrendous acts of terror. In April that year, the Brixton riots, clashes between mainly young black pre- protesters and the Metropolitan Police, marked a height in racial tensions. Johnson wrote about the event in his poem, De Great oh, Insurrection. <laughs> okay. It is spelled I N S O. H-R-E-C-K-S-H-A-N. I just had to like double take for a minute. I was like, what the fuck is that word? Insurrection. That's that's great. That's great. I love it. I love it. Shit like that. Just, I love it. Which appeared on his album Making History in 1983. It was in April 1981. Uh, this is, this is um lyrics, by the way. It was in April 1981. Obviously spelled, you know, in... Brixton, you know, B-R-I-X-T-A-N, so just go with me here. It was in April 1981, uh, down in the ghetto of Brixton, that the Babylon them caused such friction that it bring about a great insurrection, and it spread all over the nation. It was truly an historical occasion. <clears throat> there, were sim- there were similar uprisings, high points of rebellion in Handsworth District of Birmingham, and in Tottenham, North London, in 1985. Reverberations of these uprisings are still being felt. Johnson said in the riots that followed the fatal shooting of Mark Duggan by police in 2011, (coughs) uh, and in the Black Lives Matter movement, which he found quite encouraging just to see that these youngsters have taken the mantle, there has been some continuity between the generations. There is still some progress to be made. Violence has not abated. Uh, but Johnson's rebel generation changed the experience of the of black people in this country for the better. Quote, that's a significant point I'm trying to get over to you, he said, insistent. We've changed England. And in a sense, we've changed ourselves as well. Through our struggles, through our organising, through our building autonomous institutions, and through our uprisings and insurrections. But as I said, the struggle continues. Um, so yeah, there's um, Time Comes, Selected Prose by Linton Kwesi Johnson. Uh, will be, and he will be in conversation uh, at Cambridge Literary Festival on 22nd of April. Um, so if you want to get tickets, go for it. Um, and yeah, man, I found that generation so fascinating. Um, just Linton's uh, uh, just a generation is just so fascinating to me. Um, <clears throat> I think my I think my pops is was kind of just a little bit. I mean, he was aware of all of it, obviously, and he's been he's been you know done done hard by the police um he told me a story once of um uh how he uh got arrested because um they they thought he stole a camera he had and uh, my mum actually had to get the go go to my go to my nan's spot my 
Pops's mum's and um, basically get the receipt, go to go to the wherever he was being held and, you know, provide the evidence. Um, so, you know, he's been through that. But um, he he's never, he, and while he's aware of it, and we've had conversations about, you know, just how he's been treated over the years by the establishment, um, it's never come to the point of, like, um, anything that, any of that rage. Um, and I find that interesting of how, um, I, I, I don't know why that just, all of this comes to, always comes back to my dad and just how he uh, thinks about it. Um, I just, uh, and it's different from others, right? And people have their own thoughts um, about everything. Um, but I always feel akin to uh, someone like Linton and uh, just having that awareness at least. At least if anything, I'm going to at least have that awareness. And I feel like that's uh, more than most people these days. And uh, to provide awareness to a lot of things is um, always a first step, definitely. It's, it's a first step, not the last step. Uh, but it's a first step to progress, and that's uh, that's for sure. So we finish off with life, and this one is all about photography. Yay! And I all enjoy that. Um, but this one's interesting because um, I just found it randomly. Uh, just looking on Twitter and I found it, and uh, it's just a nice story. Uh, and, I, and I like nice stories, and I like to potentially finish episodes on lights and uh, more lighter stories. So I mean, this ain't even light, but it's a good story regardless. Um, simply put, it's called uh, "Photography Saved My Mental Health." It's written by Jamie Robertson and it's via Northwest Bylines. Um, so let's jump right in. For as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by photography. It's just something about capturing a moment in time, freezing it forever in an image, that feels incredibly powerful. And yet for years, I pushed my love of photography aside, thinking it was just a hobby, that it could never be a real career. I was also aware that camera equipment would be costly, which was another reason I didn't fully embrace my passion. That's that's partly... (laughs) I I, want to get a new prime lens, but I'm just like... Yeah, I don't know if I should. <laughs> That's a lot of money. Uh, but anyway, uh, instead I found myself stuck in several dead-end jobs that I hated. I was bored and unfulfilled, counting down the minutes until the end of the workday and dreading the start of the next one. It was a miserable existence, and I felt like I was wasting my life. See, that's the thing. Um, why I kind of refuse to get on that conveyor belt, right? I've talked about that before. Um... The, the reason why I refuse to is simply because of that. It feels like, like that's how I felt at school. Now, I respect, I respect education now, um, now that I'm older and I get it. Um, but, you know, the lessons weren't stimulating. That's simply put. Like the, the lessons weren't stimulating. And going to school most of the time felt like a chore, felt like work, right? Felt like a nine to five. Um, and that's what it shouldn't feel like in my mind I don't think it should feel like that university didn't feel like that to me and that's why I loved university I enjoyed it I enjoyed my time um yeah because it just didn't it it it, it energized me in a lot of ways school didn't high school didn't primary school didn't um and because of that nine to fives feel like school it's it's actually kind of vice versa it's 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 it feel if it feels like school then I don't want it and that's what people keep saying 
didn't that exactly sound what it said? didn't that exactly sound like school to you i was bored and unfulfilled counting down the minutes until the end of the workday is that not school to you were you not waiting for that 3 p.m bell oh my gosh just oh ready to go man ready to go get me out of here you know what I mean? anyway I fitted about from job to job, never feeling satisfied with what I was doing. It was also taking me hours to even get to work. Before I had a car, I would have to get up at 5am to be able to get into work for 9am. This involved getting two buses and trams to and from each work uh, to work each day. My workday was lasting from 5am to 11pm, even though my working hours were 9am to 7pm. When I got home each day, I was having to choose between eating and showering. I also found myself fighting to stay awake. Each day, I would struggle to stay awake at work and on public transport. I was having a regular, having regular heart palpitations, which I tended to ignore as they would stop very quickly, uh, and I thought it was from stress at the time. I had one, I had heart palpitations one time. It was during uni, completely randomly. I was like, I was like, I was like in bed. I don't, I may have been listening to music or whatever, um, or listening to a podcast, but my heart just went, it was just fucking thumping. I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Um, anyway. Uh, one day though, I couldn't ignore the palpitations. This time they didn't stop and my work called for an ambulance as we both thought I was having a heart attack. I went to the hospital where they did a heart scan but found nothing. They recommended that I see a GP. Soon afterwards, I went to the doctors and they told me after the heart scan that I was having anxiety and panic attacks and put me on sick. I couldn't believe it and I was in denial for a short time until after another heart scan where my doctor said there was nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with your heart. It hit me that I was having anxiety and panic attacks. Once I admitted to myself that I had anxiety, the floodgates seemed to open. I couldn't travel on public transport anymore, and as soon as I was unable to leave the house, and soon I was unable to leave the house, sorry, ended up with agoraphobia and depression. I didn't leave my room for nearly two years, except to the bathroom, of course. I was put on sertraline. I was sleeping more, having mood swings and dealing with suicidal ideation. I ended up cutting myself off from the world and was put on the highest dose of sertraline. Fast forward to a few years after that, my dad started to drag me out and my sister uh, gave me a camera around the same time. So I started to take photos on walks with my dad. This helped me to get out of the house again, come out of my shell and open up. I started to remember why I first liked photography and I began to explore different ways of playing with cameras, portraits, landscapes, different settings. Each day, I enjoyed taking pictures more and more and having a camera in my hand helped me forget my problems. But the more I took pictures, the more I realised that photography wasn't just a hobby for me, it was a passion. A few years after that, I became more confident in my photography skills. I started to take on small freelance projects. At first, it was just a few photos for friends and family, but soon as I was getting but soon I was getting paid for my work. I met my now fiance who encouraged me to start a photography business, and Robinson Photography was born in November 2020. And so I started photography taking photography more seriously. I invested in a better camera, started learning new techniques and styles, and even a few classes to prove my skills. As I spent more time taking and editing photos, I felt a sense of joy and fulfillment that I had never experienced in my old jobs. Photography allowed me to express my creativity in a way I had never been able to before, and it gave me a sense of purpose that had been missing from my life. It was a dream come true. I was finally doing something that I loved and getting paid for it. Every day I woke up excited to work to take pictures and capture moments that would be shared excuse me, for with thousands of readers. It was a far cry from my old life where I had dreaded going to work every day. Since then I have I have had my photos published, work with a range of models and clients and a variety of shoot types. My love of photography also encouraged me to learn more about it and achieve a diploma in digital photography. 
Looking back, I can hardly believe that photography helped me cope with my mental health challenges, but it did. The challenges have not gone away, but I've learnt to deal with them, and my ha- and I'm happy working for myself, free from a nine-to-five jobs and, con- and constraints. It gave me the motivation and the inspiration to pursue a career that I truly loved, and it allowed me to turn my passion into a way of making a living. If you're feeling stuck in a job that you hate, I would encourage you to explore your passions. You never know where they might lead you. For me, photography was the key to unlocking a more fulfilling and joyful life, and who knows, it might just be the key for you too. And that's very well said, um, and it kind of reminds me of um, a piece I did uh, on Moscow a few weeks ago. I don't know if it was last week or <laughs> a month ago, um, but yeah, I do remember. I mean, finding your purpose, right? That's that's part of it. We did that last. Uh, we did that the other week, uh, last week, last episode. But yeah, it's, um, it's always important. I always find that important to um, you know just find that thing. Um, that isn't work, right? And just, uh, and, and just, uh, and just love what you do. Like you have, you have the right to love what you do. And uh, you know, if some people like, like doing whatever work it is, being an accountant or whatever, then all the power to you. You know what I mean? But that's that can't be for everybody. Um, fuck, fuck. Uh, literally, he's on job like from five a.m. to eleven p.m. That's crazy. That's crazy to think about. Um, so yeah, man. But big ups to him, man. Big ups to him, and uh, you know, hopefully, um, you guys have that kind of joy in life. I hope that for everybody. I wish that for everybody because that's what everyone deserves. Um, to you know, to to have that passion and to have something that makes them want to get get up in the morning. I I get up. In, I get up. I don't get up in the morning, but <laughs> I get up, and uh, you know, I'm always ready to get cracking uh with the next thing i'm doing and it feels rewarding all the time and it feels fulfilling and uh that's that's why that's why i enjoy doing this as well as many other things but anyway ladies and gentlemen we'll leave it there from the fifth end podcast network i have been charlie tone this been was good intro music was too much by vanilla thanks to your, to your music for the ability to use uh the track you can find both links to full show notes and thanks to friend of 5e nappy hire for the ability to use charismatic for the you can also find here's the link in the full show notes and with that said hope you all have a good week. I always always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.